for the word of the Lord. Loving God, these are challenging passages because they do speak so resonantly with our observations and experience around the world today and of life. Father, may we bring these questions before you and see your hand and your presence and your purposes. May we be encouraged. May we find strength to stand firm in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the readings that we do have uh, set at this time of the year, second last Sunday of our cycle of the church year, draws our attention to the present days and the day that is yet to come. And uh, the language that is used of that is apocalyptic language or a language that is uh, evocative rather than should be pushed for too much detail. It's designed to evoke an atmosphere, a cycle of events. And uh, as we look at the two passages, in Isaiah 65, the first passage is written at a time of rebuilding, of reconstruction. You might remember that uh, the city of David, Jerusalem, had been destroyed by the Babylonians. Every stone had been taken apart and it was a most awful experience of of cries of of, uh, despair and of loss and of grief. And the people had gone into the period in exile in Babylon before they eventually returned under Nehemiah and with Ezra the priest and started the work of rebuilding the temple. And at that time, uh, the, the prophet Isaiah looks to a, great, a greater rebuilding, a greater construction, which is the heavenly Jerusalem. And it will ex- exceed anything that the earthly Jerusalem was ever able to achieve. And so it's a very spiritualized image of this great heavenly dwelling, the city of God, characterized by peace and by flourishing and by removal of all that is uh, causing of conflict and fear and anxiety will be taken away. So the language there is very poetic language, very evocative language. And the day in which this occurs came to be known as the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord emerges in the Old Testament as a decisive moment when God acts and breaks into history. And in this day of the Lord, initially it came in the context of holy war when battle was about to occur and great threat comes through foreign uh, invaders like the Philistines and others. And the day of the Lord would be a moment in which God acts in which none can oppose his purposes. The day of the Lord is a day of salvation for God's people, of deliverance, and at one and the same moment, a day of judgment upon those who oppose God, who oppose the people of God, the purposes of God. They will be dealt with decisively. 
So throughout the Old Testament, this hope emerged of the, this decisive day would come, especially when there are threats and others, and God breaks into history and there is no answer to his power. In the time of, of Amos, speaking to the northern kingdom, the people reached out and God, you know, Lord, bring us your day to bring decisively. And the prophet said, well, be careful what you ask for because all who are opposed to God and are not right with God will be on the other side of that equation. It won't be a day of salvation. It'll be a day of judgment. And there's still work that you need to do to be entering into that right relationship with God. So it is an awesome day, a powerful day. So as I was reflecting on that yesterday afternoon and observing the, the, uh, the nature of the weather around us and the thunderous anthems and others, to use the phrase from the first song that we had, it, did, it didn't literally strike me, but the imagery was certainly very powerful. What an amazing set of weather we've had in the last 24 hours and still a bit to come this afternoon, apparently. It reminds us of just how vulnerable and how finite we are over against this incredible power and the imagery that goes with it. As it happens, yesterday, uh, Fiano had her retreat and uh, as is the, the practice in our household, John and I uh, disappeared for 24 hours, went up to Clayton Bay on Friday afternoon with Abby um, and then we uh, uh, stayed indoors at Clayton Bay all day, Abby refused to even look at the door, think about going out. She just looked at me and said, what were you thinking? And uh, we were on our way back from Clayton Bay, halfway between Mount Barker on the southeastern freeway when that deluge came. And I have to say, in 45 years of driving on the road, I have never experienced anything like it. Um, on the expressway, we were down to 20 k's until fortunately our whole row of cars there decided almost at one, putting hazard lights on and all just pulled over. You know, I could uh, barely see anyone in the front few rows. It was just so strong and just waited till that passed. These images were in my mind and reminded that God is powerful, God is awesome, and we are so finite in that space and seeking shelter. So the day of the Lord is expressed in those evocative, powerful terms, especially when we come to the second passage, where Jesus, with, uh, if Isaiah was looking at the city that is still being constructed, this great cosmic dwelling place of God, the, the, uh, the city of God, Jerusalem, and he, image, he sort of paints this picture of what is still to be, Jesus, in Luke 21, in effect, looks at the valley between where we are now and before reaching that final stage. He talks about the, the Jerusalem, the temple that will be uh, bigger than any, anything any earthly temple may have been able to achieve. And this was the day of Herod's great temple that the disciples were asking about. So Jesus talks about the, this the temple will be rebuilt. It'll be an amazing temple. But between now and then, he looks down at a valley and says, and it's not going to be 
all so you know uh, easy paths it's going to be challenging times there'll be wars and rumors of wars and there'll be those who oppose the purposes of God's kingdom and those who push back against it so just reflecting on those two themes I've got a brief summary then I want to take it into a more evocative direction after it both of those passages are saying that there are dark clouds but beyond those dark clouds here is the brightness of God's kingdom the brightness of justice and hope and life and all that comes through it so it asks the question pretty much God's people throughout history since time immemorial have asked the question what on earth is God doing and as they have sat with that question the Bible through the prophets and through others have given answers to what God is doing through their particular moment, their experience of calamity and of things that are fearful. And the assurance comes from the prophets like Isaiah, and it isn't just Isaiah, that is picked up in the teaching of Jesus and the kingdom of God that Jesus announced, that the kingdom of righteousness, where all that is good and right will be upheld, and the time in which justice will be, uh, will be um, released, justice will roll down like streams, the prophets talked about. And Jesus talked about how God will bring those who have been about opposing God, or those who have done works of evil, those who have acted unjustly, unjustly for that matter, um, with injustice, those who cry out saying it's not fair it's not right how can people get away with these things and it's not hard as we look around the news feeds we get today whether it's on tv and the papers and on the internet and elsewhere we we see things that are just awful that are evil that are just appalling and we cry out and saying will these people get away with it and the kingdom of God promises that justice will prevail. People will be called to an account. And the kingdom of peace, not just of the cessation of conflict, but of shalom, of flourishing, of growth, will be firmly established. And this is what Jesus was talking about in his teaching. And the disciples then asked the question, and it's a question which God's people through every age have asked. And I suspect, as we've watched the news, we find ourselves asking the same question. And the question is simply this. How long, O oh Lord? How long do we wait before this decisive day in which the kingdom is established in its fullness, where justice and righteousness and peace will prevail? And the answer is, it is not for us to know. So long as it is today, there's opportunities for people to turn and to repent and to, to enter into the kingdom of God. We're told at the moment that the day is established, that opportunity for people to turn and to repent and to turn to God and to seek God will come to an end. It's not for us to know how long in God's purposes. Even Jesus said, I don't know. The Father alone knows how long. But we are told about 
what to expect and the promises that are shaped this period that is known as these days, these last days. Notice it's a plural word. It's like a cycle of days and of seasons and experiences that has gone right from the present time of Jesus through to our present day. In the time of Jesus, Jesus began to talk about what will happen in these days, these last days, from his time. And he foreshadowed a time of, of war and it all occurred in the first century. The Roman army laid siege on Jerusalem. They built an incredible rampart up into it. And they destroyed Jerusalem. And the temple was left in ruins. And Jesus is foreshadowing that even for that generation, these days will be difficult and dark days. So there's never an expectation that once we come to faith, we follow Jesus, that everything comes together and it's all onwards and upwards. We're told, no, it'll be challenging, it'll be difficult. There is work to be done. God's work includes us being part of that that work of uh, proclaiming and announcing and living out these realities of the kingdom. In fact, Jesus is quite the opposite. By having the name of Jesus, there will be people who will really push back because they do not want that name. They do want the teaching and the life and the, the, the example of Jesus to prevail. And we will be draw, caught up into that, even putting before courts and people challenging us to, to explain and to justify our faith. And again, sadly, we can see that in our own world, in our own time. But in the midst of those, God's promises prevail. And he says, this is as will be characterised this period of time. But the day will come. And this is the day with a capital D. The decisive day of the Lord when this age will be drawn to a close and the fullness of the kingdom will prevail. And that is what we are to look forward to. But the process of getting there is already occurring here and now. As I was reflecting on these um, last night, I was uh, drawn to a little novel. It's a little allegory in the form of a story by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. I'm not sure if you've read it, but it's well worth exploring. And uh, The Great Divorce um, is starts so the narrator eventually comes to understand in hell, but it starts in a very drab, grim, grey existence, a joyless existence that is just grind and a sense of, of hopelessness and despair until this uh, character who becomes the narrator finds himself in a queue at a bus stop. Now, the great divorce apparently was, has been uh, put on stage in the, in the States and in England um, and it has had great reviews. This is 2015 to 2019. I would love to see this on stage. It would be so powerful. So the narrator, the front character here, finds himself in this queue at a bus stop and so he takes on a bus goes on a bus trip and so he comes to discover in time that this is a journey that takes him from hell into the beginnings, into the outlying areas of heaven. And as he begins to explore this new space as they get off the bus, 
the reality is so stark, so vivid, so strong, it's almost unbearable. The grass is so real, it almost bites into the skin. C.S. Lewis is deliberately flipping those perceptions that this is reality and heaven is some sort of airy-fairy existence. He said, no, it's the other way around. Hell was that airy-fairy, grey, ephemeral distance. Heaven is so stark and real and bursting with life, it's almost unbearable. And so these characters find themselves and are drawn into a journey deeper into the forest of this reality, this life. And they come across various ghosts who appear. And these are other souls, other people working through some of the questions and experiences. And this is where the past is drawn into the present. And it becomes more an attitude of how they are willing to deal with the past, how they are willing to recognise and make choices that are life-giving choices rather than choices that are a dead end. So as C.S. Lewis's um, uh, allegory continues, the narrator begins to identify these truths. And I've had to be disciplined at this stage because there are so many great quotes from this. But this is one of the, one of the ones that's highly um, often quoted. The narrator says, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. You've made your choice. So be it. Now we could sit with that quote for quite some time and unpack it. But let me just give a slightly fuller version of the same quote. Still from the same book from C.S. Lewis. There are only two kinds of people. It starts with the same quote, then it goes on and elaborates. There are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that could seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. As C.S. Lewis expresses it, many choose to get back on the bus and to go back from when they came because the cost to them of opening and letting go of grievances, of recognising that God's grace can be shown to other people who have offended them and have done wrong, that God's grace could also receive them, leaves them in a very bitter space, an unforgiving space. And so they return on the bus to back from where they came. That soulless, despairing space is the space of hell. But for those who release and let go and receive God's forgiveness and recognise that they are fellow travellers and are drawn into these relationships who embrace love and not hate, are drawn deeper into this forest of life and all that it brings. It's an incredibly powerful way to express it. One last quote. At the end of all things, when the sun rises here and the twilight turns to blackness down there, that's down into the 
into the hell. The blessed will say, we have never lived anywhere else except in heaven. God's presence has always been around us. We're just drawn more and more into that space. And the lost will say, but we were always in hell. And both will speak truly. You see, the choices that we have now do make a difference for eternity. And we can choose to hold on into the bitterness and the grievances and to our own desire to be captains of our own world, our own life. My will be done. And God says to us those horrific words, so be it. You're on your own. But for all who seek, the door will be opened. Yesterday, as uh, storm clouds did gather, wind and rain and the southern freeway, fog as well, just to throw it into the mix, and all those events stirred around us, reminded us of, reminded me of our, my frailty. John looked across at me, he had been dozing, he said, is this frightening? I put on my Beth Bray's smile, I said, no, no, it's all good. As my adrenaline was pumping, Abby had none of it. She was just curled up in the back seat and saying, you know, stop it, as if I could. Abby's our dog, by the way, just in case you wondered who was <laughs> saying that. Until we recognise that God is present in and through these events and God's purposes will prevail. The promises of God are good and faithful but we should never take them for granted. As Fiona had a retreat in the house, one of the women in the retreat, Sandra Scott, wrote a poem yesterday afternoon in the midst of this building storm in our back garden, which was pristine on Friday, I have to tell you, free of leaves. And as she sat there, she wrote this poem, and I have heard it this morning, and uh, Fiona sought her permission to use it in the sermon today. So this is read with permission. I'm going to finish with this, this poem. It's called Until. Wait for me, my God, I will come. Wait for me until I see you. Until I see you in the majestic awesomeness of your thunder and in the flashing brilliance of your lightning until I see you in the gentle beauty of your blossoming trees, in the refreshing downpours of your rain, in the trusting gladness of your chorus of birds. Wait for me until I find you in the cleansing honesty of your word, in the comforting presence of your Holy Spirit, in the unconditional love of your generous provision. Wait for me, Jesus, until I see you in the maze, beckoning me forward, inviting me onward. Wait for me until I see you in my new horizons. And when you call forth songs of joy, my God, may my praise ever await you.